0: Into the light. We talked about darkness. Now let's talk about light. The inspiration. Light. I wish I could show you, when you are lonely or in darkness, the astonishing light of your own being. Hafiz of Shiraz. A friend of mine posted this picture of the painted stairs at Shakespeare and Company on her social media feed, and I found myself almost wistful for this kind of sentiment. I've been dancing with darkness lately because my tendency toward light has always been a little frenetic and a little desperate. But honestly, I'm a person who is naturally inclined toward the light anyway. Being light inclined is not better than being inclined toward darkness. Some of the people I love most in the world have rich, dark, gooey centers and can stare ugly truths in the face while filing their nails without missing a beat. I find that damned impressive. But it's not who I am. And I know this. I can play in darkness, but I'm always going to align with light. The important thing is to know and accept who and what you are and be that. Know that you're choosing one or the other or a balance because that's who you are, not because you're afraid of the way not chosen. The Fat Orange Cat A Lamp Put a lamp in your scene. Is it a source of light? Maybe. Maybe it's broken and doesn't work. Maybe it's a house for a gin. Maybe it's plain but pretty or ornately decorated or shaped like an elephant. Maybe it's dusty and old. Maybe it's in a shop window and your character wants it really, really bad but can't afford it. What does the lamp mean in your story? What does the desire for light mean? And how does your character deal with that? The trope. The light is not good. Every now and again, I head over to TV Tropes to find a trope for this section, and it's always fun. Today, I found The Light Is Not Good, the trope where we see that characters who appear to be good are not. Captain Hammer from Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog is a good example of this, but so is Aziraphale from Good Omens, with Crowley as his counterpart for Team Dark Is Not Evil. Aziraphale is an angel who is not morally or ethically perfect. Crowley is a demon whose evil is honestly more mischief than anything else. The fun part about setting up an expectation, say that the hero is capital G good or that an angel is never not good, is subverting that expectation along the way. Plus, as we've discussed, nothing is ever just one thing. It is impossible to be always good, because no matter what you do, if you look hard enough, you'll find a negative effect. So what is the point of even being good if you can't be perfectly good? And all evil all the time is also boring. The complexity of being human, which is how all sentient characters are coded, is where the meaning comes from. The choices we make, the knowledge that we can never be perfect, the acceptance of faults in ourselves and in others. It's the texture that makes life interesting. A smooth surface has no grip. The question. Pinch points. I'm struggling with my pinch points at the moment. They're mostly described as the antagonist making their presence known in some way. But what can I do in a mystery where I want to conceal my antagonist until the end? Can it be virtually anything else that creates more difficulty for my protagonist and gets in the way of her solving the case? Pincher. Dear Pincher, I've never heard the term pinch points before, but I love it. Thanks for adding to my terminology vocabulary, and now I'll pay you back by giving you the key to your problem. You don't need to reveal your antagonist. You don't need for the reader to know who your antagonist is. Hell, I wrote an entire novel where I didn't know who my antagonist was until I was almost done. But neither can you just have random shenanigans get in the way of your protagonist. Whatever blocks your protagonist has to be happening directly because of the antagonist. What the story needs is the influence of the antagonist, not the antagonist themselves. Imagine that your protagonist is trying to make our way down a path in the forest in a deep, deep fog. Every step she takes, something gets in her way. First, it's branches, which might seem like a natural thing for the environment, but they're stacked pretty high. Then she comes across a pickup truck just blocking the path, and she has to crawl over it. Then she hears what sounds like a bear, but it turns out to be coming from a Bluetooth speaker just off the path, clearly meant to intimidate her. In the end, all of these things were put in the path by the antagonist deliberately to thwart her pursuit of her goal. We haven't seen the antagonist, but as long as we feel their influence... We don't need to see them or know who they are. Let me know how it goes. The Practical. People like us. I've been making my way through Farscape lately, and while it was a bit of a slog to get through the first season, I'm not terribly Muppet-inclined. The show definitely had its moments. I'm well into the second season now, and it's relaxed a bit. More trauma, fewer sex falls. I like it. Today, I watched season two, episode 18, A Clockwork Nabari. It was a decent episode, but at the end, there was a line that stuck with me. Without spoilers, at the end, our dude hero, John Crichton, finishes up a tense episode telling Chiana, a Nabari woman, that she can't go see someone from her past. I want to go to him. I know. But since when do people like us get what we want? I was really struck by this line, even though in the grand scheme of things, it's not an exceptional line. It's what the line means that it's such a punch to the gut, or rather two punches to the gut. The first punch is people like us. Every ensemble show is a family show. Some family you just get, you're born to them, you're stuck in an office with them, or you're stuck on a spaceship running from the same enemies with them. Others you choose because there's some affinity of spirit between you. But regardless, no matter what, you've got something in common with this group of people. You become, in essence, people like us together. As individuals, you might have a lot of different traits, but you become one as a group. People like us is about community, and the hunt for community and belonging is coded deep into human DNA. And all sentient beings, even the ones that are textually alien or animal or android, represent some aspect of human experience. The second punch comes in with... Since when do we get what we want? There are many levels to the sentiment. You can read it as angry, plaintive, petulant, whiny, defeated, and you'd have an argument for any of those reads. To me, I see John sitting with Gianna in her frustration and sadness. He is placing himself with her, aligning with her, being with her. He's not telling her it's going to be okay. He's not giving her the bright side, telling her that maybe someday she'll see the person she wants to go to. He is sitting with her in her grief, aligning with that grief, taking it on as his own so that she is not alone. There's also a meta-level read of this. They are fictional characters, and fictional characters are always in pursuit of something. If they find it, the story is over. So that means that people like us, i.e. fictional characters, are always leaning towards something they can never quite grasp. It's because of us, because of me as a viewer, that they can't have what they want. Because that's how I need it in order for me to get what I need out of that story. Kind of neat, huh? The Feedback Loop. How hard do you want it? February 12, 2022. Dear Writer. I have to listen to podcasts in order to sleep. It started about 14 years ago when the kid's dad started snoring, like, hard. I love the guy. He's one of my best friends to this day. But he lives in Austin, and I'm in Syracuse. And sometimes, I swear I can still hear him. This was also about the time that I had a portable MP3 player. It was pre-smartphone for me. And I would just put my headphones in and listen to podcasts and be able to sleep. 14 years later, I can't sleep without podcasts, but they have to be a particular kind of podcast. The energy needs to be pretty level, so no cackling like what happens on a chipperish podcast every time Joshua or Noel or Kelly or Lisa says something to crack me the fuck up. Production has to be excellent. Bad audio distracts me too much. The discussions need to be interesting and thought-provoking, but not scary or infuriating, so no real crime or politics. Then I came across No Stupid Questions with hosts Stephen Dubner and Angela Duckworth and Chef's Kiss. Well, almost. What can happen is if I wake up a little in the middle of the night and they're talking about something really interesting, I'll wake all the way up and think about it and have a million ideas and then go into my Trello app on my phone and jot down all my thoughts at three in the morning. It was their episode about handling criticism that gave me all the thoughts. And then last week, Elise and I were talking about both taking and giving criticism while recording an episode of Endless. And it feels like maybe now is the moment for us to have this conversation. So here we go. As a culture critic, I've lived on both sides of this double-edged sword, and I found the conversation interesting. For one thing, Stephen and Angela kind of use the concepts of feedback, negative feedback, and criticism interchangeably, and they talk about this concept called radical candor, and it was a really interesting discussion. I recommend the listen. But I want to spend a little time here defining our terms and taking a look at those of us who want every bit of negative, harsh, devastating feedback we can get our masochistic little hands on. And those of us who feel ashamed and embarrassed to say that we don't really want to be beaten to a bloody pulp like that makes us weak. That does not make you weak, by the way. Just a little spoiler for later when we get there. Not wanting to get the shit beat out of you does not make you weak. And wanting to get the shit beat out of you, a position of which I've been very guilty in the past, does not make you strong. But before we get there, let's define our damn terms. For the purposes of this letter, I'm going to say feedback is any response to your work, be it flattering or not. People who love up on you and say everything is perfect are giving feedback that is just as valid as the people who send you 18 single-space pages of all the ways in which you failed yourself, your reader, and storytelling in general. So feedback is neither negative nor positive. It's just feedback. Criticism is feedback with expertise. Again, not positive or negative here. It's just feedback from a person who knows what they're talking about and can talk about it in depth with specifics. Radical candor looks to me like brutal honesty making eyes at you from under the brim of a floppy hat. And here's how I feel about brutal honesty. I think often the honesty is used as an excuse to engage in the brutality. And that is me being brutally honest about that. When I first started writing, I craved that brutal feedback because I thought it would make me a better writer. I thought it would make me tough, that it would make my work stronger, that I would develop the thick skin you need if you're going to swim in creative waters. Looking back, I realized that what I really wanted was two things. For my work to be so thoroughly scrutinized that it would be perfect, and for me to be so tough that if anyone thought it wasn't perfect, I wouldn't care. You will not be surprised, I'm sure, to learn that I failed in both ambitions. I once said on a podcast that perfectionism is just running from vulnerability, and I think I'd stand by that now. For me, the appeal of brutal feedback was to protect myself from ever setting a foot wrong, from ever doing work that wasn't perfect. Looking back now, I see two things. One, it didn't work. Two, it caused me to spend all my energy hunting down my flaws rather than calling my strengths to aid me. And I think my work suffered because of that. Now, there's no doubt that feedback is good for writers and probably for all creators, but I don't think that brutal feedback is healthy. I think brutal feedback makes creators shrink rather than expand. It makes them defensive rather than curious. It makes them tough when they may need to be tender. You have to feel things to write about them. Recently, Elisa and I were talking on the Endless podcast about criticism, and she said that she didn't respond well to brutally honest feedback, and she wondered if it made her weak somehow. If she'd asked me that question 10 years ago, I would have said no, but deep inside, I would have thought, yes. But in that moment, I realized how brave she was. I craved harsh, brutal feedback because I was afraid I was afraid of not being perfect, of creating something that someone, anyone might think was bad. The very idea of asking someone to read something of mine and just tell me the good parts was unthinkable. Now, I think there's value to it. I've always made room for what's your favorite part feedback during the drafting phase, but once the first draft was done, that's when the feedback gets serious. And honestly, I still want that criticism. Not brutal but honest with expertise and helpful suggestions. But what I also need to know is my strengths, which ironically has never been a strength of mine. I can give you a list of my weaknesses a mile long, but if you ask me for my strengths, I won't know them because I never asked anyone to tell me. In all honesty, I'd rather read a messy story where a writer plays to their strengths than something technically perfect with missed opportunities because the writer was too busy hunkering down, preparing for the slap, and dodging and weaving to avoid it, to see that those opportunities were there. As I go into this new phase of my fiction writing career, I don't want to dodge and weave anymore. I want to run, arms open, unafraid of falling down or looking foolish, ready to embrace what I find and create something beautiful from it. Not perfect. Beautiful. I think those two things may be mutually exclusive. Everything? L.